turn with me about 30 psalms back to Psalm 99. Psalm 99. Psalm 99 is our text tonight. Our title is Worship Our Reigning Lord. Worship Our Reigning Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together and then... We'll uh, read these nine verses. Let's pray. Father, we come again thanking you for the Bible, thanking you that you feed us, uh, you love your children, you teach us, you instruct us. Lord, you use your word powerfully in our lives. You change us. Uh, You make us more like Christ under your blessing. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that we grow in grace. We uh, bear more fruit for you. We become more productive as Christians. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to feed again on the Scripture. We pray that, Lord, the Spirit would help me to teach and to preach tonight in a way that is clear, a way that is plain and simple, and yet, Lord, in a way that your Holy Spirit would be pleased to use uh, in a, a profound manner in the lives of all our people. May the children understand the things that are spoken here, and may the most mature of saints also profit uh, from what we read and hear. In Jesus' name we ask tonight, amen. Well, let's uh, read together uh, Psalm 99, starting at verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies. And the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. And yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God. And worship at his holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. Amen. (coughs) Yesterday I was with a couple of our boys from church and. We were having a good time of fellowship and we were talking about the things of the Lord and one of them said to me, you know, I like the Psalms in the 90s. Uh, they're some of my favorites. And I think there, I thought about that as I was uh, working on this sermon and I thought about that and I said, well, you know, there's a common theme in these Psalms that you find in uh, most of the 90s and that is that they are called royal Psalms, royal, R-O-Y-A-L. And that is, they speak about God as being a king. If you look in your Bible, just a few psalms back to Psalm 93, I want to just show you here just a little bit of what we're talking about and how that fits in with tonight's psalm as well. You look at Psalm 93, and starting at verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. Uh, The idea of God being a king, reigning, ruling, uh, lifting up his voice, Controlling the creation. Uh, Psalm 94. O Lord God of vengeance. God of vengeance shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. There again, 
one who is governing. Uh, you could look at Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Verse 6, come and let us worship and bow down, kneel before the Lord our maker. Uh, Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord, uh, verse 7, excuse me. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory of his name. And it says, bring an offering, come into his courts. Of course, that speaks of his kingship. And then verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We could also see it in verse 90, Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. We saw it last week in Psalm 98, verse 6, shout joyfully before the king, the Lord. And now we come to Psalm 99. And, and this continues, by the way, into next week's psalm, Psalm 100 as well. That's the final royal psalm. So we are looking at another royal psalm tonight that speaks about the kingship of our Lord and of our God. Now, this psalm, I think, also has another theme within it, and that is that God is holy. Look at the several repetitions of the holiness of God in this psalm. You find it three times. It's interesting that it's repeated three times, thrice holy. And we see that in other portions of the scripture. You can look at verse 3 of Psalm 99. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. You can see it in verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. And then also in verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. So holiness is a a great theme in this psalm, as well as his kingship. This is something that we find in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, when Isaiah lifted up his eyes and beheld the Lord in glory, and he was... Uh, worshipped by the seraphim on either side of him, and they cried out three times, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Then we see it in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, three times he is mentioned as holy, holy, holy. Now, this is a way of expressing something that is superlative, the repetition of it. Uh, We would say, you know, It is very or exceedingly, we might put an adverb on it and then describe it, you know, holy, but they would repeat it, holy, holy, holy. Uh, So we see the theme of holiness here. We see the theme of kingship here, all of these things. But we also see the theme of worship. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that tonight. I'm going to use that as really the way to... um, organize this psalm. Some people divide it into two parts, some into three parts. I'm going to divide it into two parts tonight, verses 1 through 5, worship the Lord, and then verse 6 to the end, and how the psalmist says that our fathers worshipped the Lord. So I'm going to divide it into those two parts, worship the Lord, and then our fathers worship the Lord. Now some like to organize this psalm according to the three refrains about God being holy. That's fine, too. I think there are different ways you can approach a particular passage when wanting to teach or preach on it. But I'm just going to keep it down to two points tonight. So let's talk about worship tonight as we think about the holiness of God. Now, I don't think these two things are uh, distinct. 
uh, or, or can be separated. They can be distinct, but they're not separated. And that is, I think, as you think about the holiness of God and the majesty and the glory of God, it lends itself to want to worship God. I think there's a couple things. Holiness attracts at the same time it convicts. Holiness attracts while it also can convict. When you see, for example, Isaiah encountering the holiness of God, we see that he is convicted of his unrighteousness, which he describes in terms of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. He becomes profoundly aware of his sinfulness. We see this, for example, with Jesus. When Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples early on, and one of the first reactions that Peter has is that Jesus is holy and that he's a sinner. And he actually asks the Lord to depart from him. So we see that holiness brings a conviction of sin. But uh, it also causes us to recognize that we need the Lord and we do not have him and his holiness inherently. We need what the Lord has even though what he has convicts us of our own sin. And this uh, psalm, I think, brings that out. The holiness of God is brought out, but it is also, this psalm is a call to worship him. So that as you study and meditate on the holiness of God and the righteousness of God, that I hope you also will have a desire to worship him. I think that churches need to really hit this home. Uh, in, in evangelical circles, the idea that, that what we're doing when we gather together is the public worship of God, to really stress that. Uh, I am concerned that the loss of focus on, on worship is taking place, that the worship service is becoming more entertainment-oriented, it's becoming more consumer-oriented, and that we are recognizing it as something that is to please the audience rather than something that is to please God, who is the audience. The audience is often uh, misapplied. And we see here that it is the Lord who is the audience, and we are to approach him in worship. Now, let's break this psalm down just a little bit. First of all, verses 1 through 5, in the worship of the Lord. Look at your text with me tonight. The Lord reigns. So we begin here again with this theme that Jehovah is in authority. He's in charge. He's reigning. He's ruling. He is on his throne. And he says, let the peoples tremble. Now that is, I believe, a call to worship right there. The people of God are to recognize the reign of God, and yet they are called to approach him, to tremble before him. Now this is, something that I think probably is missing in a lot of worship services. Maybe it's missing in something of your own worship of the Lord, that you're to approach him with reverence. What's this trembling about? Well, boys and girls, remember what the New Testament tells us. Our God is a consuming fire. Yes, he's a God of love, infinite love. Yes, he's a God of compassion. Yes, he's a God of mercy, great mercy to the poorest and neediest of sinners. But he is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He's infinitely righteous. And he is omnipotent. 
and that righteousness and that omnipotence and the greatness and the majesty should strike a chord of what I'm going to say to you, filial fear. Now, do you know, boys and girls, what I mean by filial fear? You boys are filial. You know that? It means son, having to do with the sonship. And when we are called as believers to tremble, it is not the trembling of a slave, but it is the trembling of a son or a daughter, of a, of a father that we have great awe for, majesty. You know, there are those in our lives that God has put in our lives for whom we have great and tremendous respect, maybe because of the force of their character, or their self-denial or sacrifice for us. And we have tremendous respect for them. And, and uh, that, at a human level, uh, being the case, how much more at the divine level? Let people tremble. Recognize who you serve, congregation. That your worship is to be one of reverence, one of a filial fear that honors God, that recognizes He is a consuming fire. That you exist uh, because of his power. His life is in your hands. And especially if you are unconverted, how much reason you have to tremble. Now you truly have reason to tremble, not in a filial fear, but as one who stands tonight under condemnation. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, you have much reason to tremble before the Lord, as we saw from Wednesday night from Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is because here now you are being held by a spider's thread over the pit of fire. And you are being held not by a father, but by an angry judge whom you have offended. All the more reason that if we are outside of Jesus Christ tonight, you need to come to Jesus Christ and receive Him as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins that you might become a child of God. But the reign of God is, it is one of the most comforting truths in the scripture as well for the child of God. Uh, because we know that he reigns and rules and he ordains everything that comes to pass. And we know that the Bible says that everything that comes to pass is for our good and, and for his glory. So I, wanna, I do wonder, uh, as you worship, uh, do you worship with a sense of trembling before the Lord? The, the Bible says, Isaiah says, you know, to this man I will look to him who hears my word and trembles at it. I remember when I was in seminary, we were given the assignment of interviewing a pastor. It was a counseling class I actually was taking and we had to interview a pastor and ask him a lot of questions with regard to counseling. One of the things that I remember asking him was, I said, what has changed in your 20 years of ministry? One of the things that he said that had changed over those two decades was he did not have as many people as he used to who had an excessive fear of God. He also uh, found that people did not seem to be as deeply convicted of sin as they used to be. There, there was a loss of Fear of God. Now, we're not aiming for people to have excessive fears of God, but nevertheless, if there's no excessive fear of God, could it be that it's because we've lost a sense of his awe and his reverence? 
Well, I've got to keep moving. Look at verse uh, 1b. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Now, the cherubim, boys and girls, this is a, rever- a reference to probably the Ark of the Covenant. You'll see this reference uh, other places in this psalm. That the Ark of the Covenant, remember, they carried it on poles and it was about three feet long and it's about one foot wide and about one foot deep and it had the tablets of Moses in there and Aaron's rod that had blossomed was in there and some of the manna they put in a jar and it was in there. And it represented the presence of God. And so the priests would carry this thing when they were carrying it properly uh, with poles and you were not allowed to touch it. Uzzah, you remember, tried to reach out and stabilize it when it was on the cart. And God struck him down because it was the symbol of the holiness of God. It was the presence of God. It, sometimes it was described as the footstool uh, of God. And on the top of that ark, it had this uh, top to it. And on the, on the top of it had two cherubim with which, with which they covered themselves with their wings. Because it symbolized that these cherubim were in the presence of God. And so you had a cherubim here and a cherubim there on either side. And in the middle, of course, was the invisible God who would place his feet there. And one time a year, the high priest would come into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And he would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat there, signifying what Jesus Christ would do for us on on the cross one day. There's a fly in here. <laughs> I hate white backgrounds when the flies come in here. I, I see all the eyes go like this, you know, corporately together. The, uh, it, it represented the presence of God. It, rep- it was a representation of the throne that was his in heaven. And so he's saying he's enthroned above the cherubim uh, let the earth shake. So we, uh, when we approach him, we are approaching his throne. That's where he sits. He's king over creation. And we approach him in, in his majesty. You see this in Revelation, the great white throne. You see that the elders who are gathered before that throne literally are on their face. They are prostrate before that throne. Uh, Isaiah 6, the angels are covering their eyes and their creatureliness in his presence. So you have a sense of his greatness, his majesty, his glory, his power, his dominion, all of these things. And the psalmist is reminding us that we need to stand in awe of that power and arouse ourselves from a spiritual stupor. And because you serve an awesome God, he's a God of power, he's a God of authority. So don't come sleepily and lazily. And lackadaisically into the worship of God. But come with boldness to the throne of mercy. The blood's on that mercy seat. Come with all boldness. Jesus Christ has opened the way for you into that holy of holies. The high priest has finished his work. He's put his blood on that mercy seat. And he has presented himself before the Father in heaven. And so we go. We have this privilege to go even though we're still sinners. To go before a holy God and to worship him. And just as the Father is to be worshipped, so is the Son. Jesus Christ is fully God. And so we see that in the New Testament, they praise the Father. They worship the Father on the great white throne. But they also worship the Lamb who was slain. 
The same worship is given to the Son as is given to the Father. And thereby we show the, the deity of Jesus Christ. He is fully God. Jesus Christ was willing to die for us so that we could worship him. The Father, we are told in John 4, is looking for worshipers. He's looking for you to worship him. He's looking for you to come. And that was what he told the woman at the well. And why, what did Jesus do to, to make that possible? Well, he gave himself on the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Jesus, though he himself is fully God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But what did he do? He, he, he laid aside the prerogatives that were his as God. He, he set them aside and he became a servant, a bondservant for you. So that you could become a worshiper of him, a worshiper of the Father, a worshiper of the Holy Spirit. And he, he laid himself aside because he considered you more important than himself. And he surrendered that life on the cross so you could be a worshiper. So we have great reason here to tremble. We have great reason, though, to tremble not with a servitude that is slavish, but with a joyful, adoptive trembling, recognizing we've been brought near, we've been brought as children to a father, we are in the family, there is now no condemnation, but yet the awesomeness of the gospel, the awesomeness of the majesty and the glory of God, the holiness that he is both just and the justifier, should cause us a, a sense of, of wonder if we are awake. And that's the thing that is our problem. That the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we often fall back into our torpor, don't we? We fall back into that, that slumber. We're like the disciples. And Jesus has to come and say, Could you not pray with me even one hour? Could you not watch with me? And all too often the answer is no. And so we need these psalms that call us to... Worship him. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Awake, sleeper, awake. And come and worship him. The Lord is great in Zion. Notice verse 2. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all peoples. Now, boys and girls, Zion. What is Zion? Zion is Jerusalem. And the Old Testament often speaks about Zion. The reason the Psalms often speak about Zion or Jerusalem. The reason Zion is so important is because that is where God dwelt in the Old Testament. And it was a type of heaven. It was a type of, of Zion that is in heaven. Our, our Zion is a heavenly Zion now. And so God reigns. He's great in Zion. And we are pilgrimaging there. We are going to Zion uh, this world is not our home, but we are traveling in Jesus Christ to Zion to worship him, to see him whom we love, who first loved us. Now, Zion on earth simply was the presence of God here in this world. And the significance of Jerusalem was that the Lord would condescend to his people in Zion. So if you wanted to come near to God in the old covenant, you came to Zion. Three times a year they had these services and they would make these pilgrimages and you'd go to Zion. That's what made Zion so important, so special. The presence of God was there. But remember what Jesus said in John 4, that a time would come 
when it would neither be on that mountain or this mountain, but it would be what? It would be wherever the Lord was in spirit and in truth that we would worship him. And so my application is that when we worship, we do so in Christ, in spirit and truth. Zion is here tonight because we are here in the name of Jesus. And the kingdom is among us because we are gathered in his name. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am, says Jesus. Zion is important because that is where the Lord makes his greatness known. And Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst. He reigns and he rules in Zion. He is great in Zion. That means he's great in the church. This is what makes church so important. This is why quiet times are not sufficient. As important as quiet times are, great. I'm glad. I hope you have one. But it is the public gathering of the people of God where God often manifests himself to his church and makes his greatness known. That's where he's collectively praised and worshipped. And so we are called uh, to give him that praise because he is great and awesome. Look at verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. And there's the first refrain. Holy is he. The first time the holiness is mentioned there. We are to praise him. We must praise our God. I've been reading uh, James Robertson's biography of Stonewall Jackson that was published about six years ago. Professor from Virginia Tech. He had an interesting Quote, Jackson said, we can never thank God too much. We can never thank God too much. We must praise him. We must worship him. We must praise him in our prayers and our singing. And so I want to ask you, are you praising the Lord our God when you sing? Are you praising him in the morning? Are you praising him in the noontime and in the evening? Are you praising him for his attributes? Are you praising him for what he's done on the cross? Are you praising him for his resurrection? Are you praising him for his dominion? Are you praising him for his great love? Are you praising him because the Holy Spirit has come into your heart and is within you? You know, if you're like me, you struggle with praise. I think we all probably struggle with praise. Intercession just comes more naturally. But I think it's because it doesn't take as much maturity. uh, Because we all want things. But praise is where we forget about our wants and desires and where we want to focus on him. And uh, I think I complain too much and I intercede probably too much for myself and probably don't spend enough time praising God. And this psalm is an important reminder that uh, we should praise him. Now, I would say that I I do like to sing and I do like to praise him in that regard. And that probably is... A big help to me. Hopefully it is to you. i got to keep moving. Verse 4. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. And you have executed justice and righteousness. The king in his strength loves justice. The establishment of equity. Uh, righteousness and equity. They are defined by the Bible. By the word of God. Uh, notice he says where he loves this. He, he has executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Jacob, of course, is the people of God. That was uh, a way of denoting the people of God in the Old Testament. And again, he loves righteousness and equity in his church. And, and he should be able to find it here. Um, he's going to test his church one day with fire to see what the church is made of. And uh, the more equity and righteousness in the church, the more it will 
survive the test of fire, but if it is hay and straw and stubble, it will be found out on that day. Look at verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. Holy is He again. A call to worship again. Reference to His holiness. Did you know, I, I mentioned this to you, I think, in the last sermon or two in the evening. The word in Hebrew for worship uh, literally can be understood as prostrate or to bow very low. It gives uh, reverence to God. Um, Think about posture sometime at home in, in your worship. Um, does your posture exalt him and abase self? Now, there are many ways we find people praying and worshiping. And I'm not saying that you must always you know, bow low or prostrate yourself. And, you know, in Acts 2, they are sitting. Uh, we find sometimes they are standing and uh, raising of hands. But... Nevertheless, keep that in mind. Um, maybe it will help you as a worshiper of God to lift up your hands uh, in worship, in, in your private praying, uh, to seek the Lord, or to kneel, or to you know, prostrate yourself, to recognize bodily that the Lord is great and is greatly to be praised. He's greatly to be honored. Think about that, boys and girls, if you've never considered that. Maybe that would help stimulate you a little bit to, to change the way you pray in, in terms of your bodily posture. Now, in the second half here of this psalm, we won't spend quite as much time here, um, the psalmist notes that the fathers were worshipers of God. In the first half, he's calling the people to worship. Because God is righteous and he's holy. And then notice in verse 6, he makes a historical reference and uses this for the next few verses. He says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those who called on his name. So he takes three great godly men of the Old Testament. Moses and Aaron, who were brothers, of course, served in the wilderness together, uh, led the people out of Egypt. And then Samuel who was one of the early prophets. You remember he was dedicated as a child to the Lord upon a bow of his mother. And these men were leaders among God's people. And it says that they called upon the Lord and he answered them. So the first thing we see is that the, these are men who prayed. They were worshipers. And God answered them. Now how encouraging is that? To know that the prayers of these godly men were answered and they were heard. And it's an encouragement to us. I think this is why James reminds us that Elijah was a man just like us. And yet, when he prayed, he was heard by God. And so, if God will hear them, he will hear us because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Christ has given us access and we ought to pray and make use of that. How foolish would we be to ignore the access that we have to the Father? And then look at verse 7. He spoke to them in the pillar of the cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. They, not only were they praying men and worshiping men, but they were obedient men. Notice that God would answer them, but they also 
sought to live for him. Now, they were not perfect men. I mean, the, the, the psalm acknowledges that in verse 8. He says, you were a forgiving God to them. They were sinners. They did fail. And sometimes they failed greatly. J.I. Packer has said that sometimes uh, great men have great sins, great failures. And so it was with Moses when he didn't revere God, but he struck the rock. Uh, when Aaron grumbled with Miriam in the wilderness against the leadership of Moses, and God had to correct them. These men died in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness. Notice that it says that you were forgiving God to them, yet an avenger of their evil deeds. And, and we see that though God will forgive us of sins, sometimes we must bear the chastening for those sins. Sometimes we have to bear with the consequences of our sins. And this is, of course, a reason why we should avoid sin and seek to run away from sin. Because sometimes God, though he will pardon, you must deal with the consequences. Isn't that what you see when you read the account of David? And, and you read about David's life after the sin with Bathsheba. I mean, it's just misery. The, 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 the kingdom struggled. The, uh, David struggled. There was civil war. There was strife in his family. He had all these problems that arose because of his sin. But yet, nevertheless, the, their take was that these were godly men. And I think it's interesting how often the Psalms, in particular, use redemptive history to stimulate the church to worship and obedience. How many times do we read in the Psalms something about the past works of God? And I think it tells us something. It tells us that as a church, we need to be mindful of the great works of God, particularly in the cross, and why the cross has always got to be before his people. But I think it also teaches us the importance of learning our history, both History that is in Bible, and I think church history is profitable too. We study church history, we study uh, church leaders of the past so that we would become worshipers of God, that we would emulate them insofar as they emulated Jesus, and that we'd also learn from their failures, and that we'd avoid their sins. Unfortunately, we live in a, a culture that, that is dismissive of history. C.S. Lewis noted this. C.S. Lewis uh, called it chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. The idea that we don't need the past. We don't need a past culture to teach us anything. We are sophisticated. We are advanced. You know, we have iPads today. You know, we don't need those people back then. And, of course, that is just that, chronological snobbery. Uh, the Bible takes the history of the past quite seriously. You know, uh, David was a thousand years before Jesus. Moses was uh, hundreds of thousands, hundreds of years before David. And yet uh, they bring up the great works of these men. And they're important, and they're important for us. We should study uh, the redemptive history in the Bible and study the history in the church. Because it helps us to worship. That's the point of church history. It's not just to you know, fill our minds with facts, but it's to lead us to greater service in Jesus Christ in the short days that we have. And we have an opportunity to do that. As we, this week, are reminding ourselves uh, on this, the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church this Saturday, this coming Saturday, uh, we remind ourselves 
of the faithfulness of others who went before us and fought that fight, that we could be worshipers here today and so that you would serve Jesus Christ in the battles that he has for you today. Let's close in prayer.